welcome to episode four of Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. My name is Derek V. Trout, and I'm so thankful that you've decided to join me today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. Today we're going to go from the printed word back to the silver screen as we examine the sci-fi classic 2001, A Space Odyssey. I will often refer to this movie simply as 2001 throughout the podcast, just so I don't have to keep saying the full title over and over and over again. So 2001 was based off of a short story written by Arthur C. Clarke titled The Sentinel. There's a book by the same name as the movie, but Clarke wrote the book at the same time as the screenplay and released the book after the movie. Today we're only going to be looking at the movie. The screenplay for 2001 was written by Clarke as well as Stanley Kubrick, who also directed the film. The name Stanley Kubrick may throw up some red flags for some of you because while he's often considered one of the best directors of all time, his movies very frequently have some questionable content in terms of language, violence, and sex. But not the case for us today. 2001 is rated G, and it has no visual content or language that would give someone pause to watching it. As far as the content goes, it would even be okay for children to watch, although I doubt they would like it, I don't think they would enjoy it, for several reasons. In part because of the slow-moving nature of the film, and also the heavy, in-depth topics that are discussed within the film. Honestly, listener, I must confess, in preparing for this podcast, it's the first time I've actually watched 2001 in its entirety. I've tried to watch it before then, I've watched some of it, but before preparing for this podcast, I had never actually made it all the way through. I'd always fallen asleep. To me, it's just so relaxing and calming. We have times with astronauts that are slowly guiding through space, or there's spaceships that are slowly going through the process of landing, or there's so many different things where it's just this da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da that's playing in the background. And you're watching just the slow-moving things, and it, it is always so relaxing to me. So I'd actually never made it the whole way through it in one sitting before. I may be getting ahead of myself here and describing the movie and what's going on, um, but let's go ahead and get started then. So to begin with, of course, I offer the obligatory spoiler alert. However, since 2001 actually came out in 1968, which makes it 54 years old, I don't think I should need to give a spoiler alert for something that's over 50 years old. Um, I don't think that should be necessary, but nonetheless, we've done it and you have been warned. And if you've never seen 2001 or if it's been a while, you might want to pause this and go give it a quick watch. It's only two hours and 29 minutes long, according to the IMDb. Which is interesting, because I watched it, 2001, I watched it on HBO Max, and the total runtime on that was 2 hours and 25 minutes. And then Wikipedia told me that it was 2 hours and 22 minutes long, so we've got one that's 5 minutes longer than another, one that's 7 minutes longer than another, so I was trying to figure out how long 2001 actually is, and I went way too far down this rabbit hole. And I should probably just cut this part from the podcast, it's not going to be very useful, it doesn't really have anything to do with the movie or theological themes within it, but... Nevertheless, uh, we take a deep dive here, and this was part of my deep dive into 2001, trying to figure out what exactly the length of this movie is. Now, the Google machine told me it was 2 hours and 19 minutes, so that's 10 minutes shorter than the IMDb tells me it is. And Rotten Tomatoes also said 2 hours and 19 minutes, which I suspect they did that because they probably get their length of the movie from Google, but I could be wrong. That was just my assumption. I even went and found a, a DVD for sale of 2001. I, I didn't buy it, but I looked at the, the back of it to see the total runtime, and the total runtime was 148 minutes, or 2 hours and 28 minutes. So I don't know if any of this matters. None of it probably does. 
but again, this is part of my deep dive process that I spent way too much time on, and now you're getting to spend some time on it as well. So hopefully I haven't lost any of you, and we should probably just move on from this. And I think we're watching all the same movie. There could be a lot of things, a lot of time that is cut from 2001, and we would still have the same movie. So uh, it's just interesting to me that there are some discrepancies in runtime. I try to figure out the exact length of it, and there's just, uh, I don't know. Anyway, we'll, we'll move on. Um, let, so let's, let's just get started with the movie. Now, according to the IMDb, 2001 A Space Odyssey is about the monoliths that push humanity to reach for the stars. After the discovery in Africa generations ago, the mysterious objects lead mankind on an awesome journey to Jupiter with the help of Hale 9000, the world's greatest supercomputer. We'll get into all of that and the theological themes and ideas and significance and explain what is happening throughout the film as we go. And remember how I said that 2001 could be slow moving, that it, that it has that slow pace? Well, to start the movie from the time of the first dun, 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 from the, the, the time that those musical notes first hit until the first words are spoken, there's 22 minutes and 28 seconds. 22 minutes. Over 22 minutes pass before a word is spoken in this movie. Now, it's not all silence there during that 22 minutes. It's There's the, the whooshing of wind. There's the howling of monkeys. There's music. And there's other various animals and sounds. But before someone speaks, before we hear a word, there's 22 minutes and 28 seconds. And during this time, the film says so much without saying a word. And here's where, when we dive into what this means, where I first struggle with how much to take the script into account for this movie. I've looked at maybe a dozen scripts in my life, not, not very many, but I've looked at some preparing for this podcast. I've also looked at some with dabbling with screenwriting of my own and seeing how it's done. So probably about a dozen scripts that I've looked at, not a ton of experience, but I've never seen a script that is so different from the final on-screen product. Sometimes there are scenes from the script that are cut. They don't make it into the movie. They're left on the cutting room floor. Sometimes there's lines that either are not in the script that make it into the movie or that are in the script that don't make it. So I kind of understand those things and as they go through the filmmaking process. But with 2001, we are left trying to figure a lot of things out. We're left trying to figure out what these things mean and what we have seen and what are the implications of that. We're actually told very little. And the viewer is left to figure out what is going on. We're left to figure out what is seen. However, in the script, there is no guessing. There's nothing left to the viewer to figure out on their own because we are told everything. The script has a narrator, and my understanding is the narrator was actually Arthur C. Clarke himself, who was narrating this movie. Uh, but the narrator is never actually heard once on the on-screen product. In fact, the first script I looked at was so different, I thought that maybe I've got something wrong. Maybe I've made a mistake. So I looked at three or four other sources to find the scripts, and they were all the same. The script is just so different that it's truly amazing to me. For example, the movie uh, starts out with one group of monkeys that encounters another group of monkeys, and they go through something, and we'll get there to what that is, but, but that's the, how the movie starts, is two different groups of monkeys. But in the script, there's only one group of monkeys, and the leader has a name. He's named Moonwatcher. In the script, the group of monkeys are fighting other animals, not 
another tribe of monkey, but monkeys, but different animals. They're fighting a pig at first, and then finally they defeat a lion. And Moon Watcher wears the lion's head as a headdress as they have been victorious over this great predator. But the on-screen movie is nothing like that. So I'm not exactly sure how useful it is going to be to look at the script and what the narrator says, because none of that makes it to the on-screen product. And they were so different that I did some research to figure out why. Why is the script so different from the movie? And here's what I found out. Here's what I learned from Michael Moorcock, who is a science fiction author who knew both Kubrick and Clark. And this is from an article titled, Close to Tears, He Left at the Intermission. How Stanley Kubrick Upset Arthur C. Clark. And that article can be found on the website newstatesman.com. Here is, in part, what Moorcock wrote. I guess the problem was a difference in personality. Arthur was a scientific educator. Explanations were his forte. He was uncomfortable with most forms of ambiguity. Kubrick, on the other hand, was an intuitive director inclined to leave interpretation to the audience. These differences were barely acknowledged. Neither did Kubrick tell Arthur of his concerns regarding the final version, where, thanks to Arthur, the film was heavy with voice-over explanation and clarifications of scenes but Kubrick wanted the story to be told almost entirely visually. Without consulting or confronting his co-creator, Kubrick cut a huge amount of Arthur's voiceover explanation during the final edit. This decision probably contributed significantly to the film's success, but Arthur was unprepared for. As it turns out, Arthur did not get to see the completed film until a U.S. private premiere, and he was shocked by the transformation. Almost every element of explanation had been removed. Reams of voiceover narration had been cut. Far from being a pseudo-documentary, which is what Clark wanted, the film was now elusive, ambiguous, and thoroughly unclear. If Arthur was disappointed by Kubrick's decision to cut his dialogue and narrative to the bone, he was eventually reconciled by being able to put everything left out of the film into the novel, meaning that each man was able to produce his own preferred version. The success of the film ensured that the book became a bestseller as audiences sought answers to questions raised by Kubrick's version. And Arthur soon got over his disappointment, going on to write three best-selling sequels to his novel. Kubrick once said this about the film, I tried to create a visual experience, one that bypasses verbalized pigeonholing and directly penetrates the subconscious with an emotional and philosophical content. I intended the film to be an intensely subjective experience that reaches to the viewer at an inner level of consciousness, just as music does. To explain a Beethoven symphony would be to emasculate it by eradicating an artificial barrier between conception and appreciation. You're free to speculate as you wish about the allegorical meaning of the film. Thank you very much, Mr. Kubrick. We will. That's why we are here today to speculate about the allegorical meaning of the film. And Kubrick continues in this quote, I don't want to spell out a verbal roadmap for 2001 that every viewer will feel obligated to pursue or else fear he's missed out. But that's exactly what the script does. The script gives us a very clear roadmap of what we have to believe about 2001. But that's not what Kubrick wanted, even though that's what Clark had in mind. So it's just so interesting to me the difference between the script and the movie. I see 2001, the movie, as much more of a Kubrick movie than I do a Clark movie. So if you want Kubrick's version of the story, watch the movie. If you want Clark's version, read the book. 
book by the same title, 2001, A Space Odyssey. I don't think it's going to be of much use, however, for our purposes here to quote the narrator, because I want to focus on the on-screen product, not just the script that was written. However, if you do go look at the script, I think it gives you some indication of why we see some of the things on screen that we see. I think maybe it gives us an understanding of what was in Clark and Kubrick's mind when they were making this movie and, and why they put on screen what they do. But it'll spell it out for you very clearly. Very, very long passages from the narrator are in the script and very long. And, and it's over detailed, but none of that made it into the movie. So I thought that was interesting and something worth sharing with you, just how different the idea started out and what ended up on screen. And I think this gives some insight, too, into why 2001 is so ambiguous, why it's so what in the world did we just see and why it's such a visual experience, because that's what Kubrick wanted. That was his goal. That was his intention. But Clark wanted it to be something very, very different. So it's interesting to me the, the difference between the two and what we actually see. So today we're just going to be really examining the on-screen version that we have. And we'll be taking a look at that. So the first thing we see of significance in the film on the on-screen product are the words, the dawn of man. They appear on screen and then after that we see a desert landscape with some monkeys. So right from the start, there's a topic that is of some controversy that we cannot ignore evolution. Now, we will discuss evolution, and we will discuss it in length, but before we get there, I want to recap what we see from the beginning of the movie with the monkeys until we see the spaceships flying through space. So, as I said, we, we, we see one group of monkeys to start the film, and this group of monkeys is struggling. At one point, a leopard attacks and it kills one of the members of this group of monkeys, and they appear to be struggling not only to survive with other predators, but they also seem to be struggling to find food and to find water and to find safety and protection. This group of monkeys is struggling to survive. At one point, this group of monkeys maybe has some hope, though. They come and they find a water hole, but there is already another group of monkeys that, is, that have laid claim to this precious resource. The first set of monkeys that we have been following through the movie up until this point. They, they tried to get some of the water, but they are quickly chased away by the other group that's already there. They are overrun, and they are defeated, and they are not able to get any of the water. And then we see the first group of monkeys. They are sleeping in a cave, and they are scared because you can hear the growl of the leopard. And we've already seen what the leopard has done to them, and they are afraid. They are fearful as they are trying to get some sleep. And we quickly see that the monkeys are not at the top of this food chain. But then things change. The monkeys wake up and they see a monolith, a large black rectangle that's sticking out of the ground. And there are many, many questions about this. But first of all, what is a monolith? According to Webster's Dictionary, it is a very large stone that is usually tall and narrow, or a single great stone, often in the form of an obelisk or column. Now, an obelisk is a tall, four-sided, narrow, tapering monument. So if you've seen the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. in America, you've seen an obelisk. That's what that is. But here in 2001, this large black rectangle is referred to as a monolith. And the first group of monkeys we've encountered, they wake up and this monolith is outside their cave. And we have some questions. What is this? 
Where did it come from? Who put this here? What does it mean? Why is it here? There's a lot of questions that we have about this monolith. And when the monkeys see it, they, they freak out. They lose their minds. They're jumping around and they are hooting and hollering and screaming and running around. And they're, they're acting crazy. But then one of them goes up and, and touches the monolith. And then others go and they touch it too. And then there is this well-known image from the movie where a monkey looks up and we see the monolith that is above him, but then the sun is shining at the top of that, uh, over the top of that monolith. So he's looking up and you have that big black structure with the sun shining over top of it as he's looking up into the sky, a very well-known known scene and a very well-known image that is there. And then one of the monkeys we see, uh, moving on a little bit, we don't know how much time has passed, but one of the monkeys, presumably the leader of the first group, is playing with some bones. There's a pile uh, of animal bones that is there. And then he he picks up one bone, a, a big, thick, long bone, and he picks it up and he starts hitting other bones with it. And this seems as though, at this point, it seems as though something has dawned upon this monkey. Something comes to mind here that this could be more than just a bone. It could be a weapon. It could be something that is used to damage other bones. This is more than just a pile of bones here, but I can pick this up and I can use it as a tool. I can use this as a weapon. This monkey uses the bone to kill some other animal, some kind of pig, I think. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but all the monkeys, they go and they eat this animal that has been killed with the bone. Because now he has a tool, he has a weapon, something that he can use. And then the first group of monkeys go back to the water hole and they come armed with bone in hand. And they kill one of the other monkeys, I assume it would be the leader. They, they kill one of them that's already there in the group that has already taken over the water hole. They go and they kill him. And now it's their water hole. So the first group of monkeys who were chased off now come back with a weapon in hand. And they're able to defeat the monkeys that had this water hole. So, so this, this group of monkeys that we've seen that are struggling to survive now have got all that they need. They're able to get food and to kill other animals with their bone. They, they can kill other monkeys with their bone and take over their water. So, so they've gone from struggle to thriving. And that's kind of a recap of what we see in the first, uh, I don't know, 15, 17 minutes, whatever it may be, of the film with the monkeys. So let's pause here and go back to the statement that we saw at the beginning, the dawn of man. And we're also going to look at the monolith and, of course, evolution. So there is no doubt that 2001 is a proponent of evolution, that this film is making a statement that we as humans at some point in time were monkeys, merely animals, not separate from other animals within the animal kingdom. But now we are human, something that is distinct from other animals within the animal kingdom. And this idea of evolution, of course, has a number of theological questions, implications, and ideas within it. And of course, when we talk about evolution, the question of the age of the earth will undoubtedly arise. But that's not going to be one that we answer today or talk about. At some point, we might talk about the age of the earth. We're just going to focus mainly on evolution, because I believe that's what 2001 is really about, a film about evolution and making a statement there. So we'll save talking about the age of the earth for some other time. I'm sure we'll get there. But here's what I'll say about it for right now. I am a creationist. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth 
And I believe that God created ex nihilo, or out of nothing. That's the Latin. My Latin may be terrible, but that God created out of nothing. That God is the source of creation. So I am a creationist, believing that God has created all that there is. And how long did that take God? How long is old as the earth? All those different kinds of questions. I, I, I don't know. And we will get into that at some point in some kind of work that we look at, I'm sure. But for right now, I'll just say that I'm a creationist, that I believe that God created the heavens and earth and that he created them out of nothing. And whether the earth is only a few thousand years old or a few billion years old, I'm not sure that really changes much of how I understand God to interact with people. I'm not really sure it changes much about my understanding of who God is and what uh, the scriptures show us that he has revealed himself to be in the relationship that he wants to enter in within us. So just quickly saying here, I don't know how old the earth is, but I'm not sure it makes a huge impact on who God is and how he interacts with his creation. But if you listened to the last episode about Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, and you should have. If you didn't listen to episode three about The Martian Chronicles with Ray Bradbury, go take a listen to that when you're done with this one. But if you listened to the last episode, you'll know that I do not believe that science and religion are in a war with each other. I don't think that they have conflict with one another. I don't think that's the relationship that they should have. I also don't believe that the relationship between science and religion should be that of independence or just in relationship of dialogue. I believe there should be a relationship of integration, where Christianity enhances scientific understanding and where scientific understanding enhances Christianity. And I believe that is possible to do. That we can look at these two fields and they can be beneficial to each other as they integrate within one another while still maintaining integrity to Christian beliefs and still maintaining integrity to scientific process. But where does that leave us? Is the theory of evolution true? Is evolution compatible with Christianity? I guess I should pause here and define what I mean when discussing the theory of evolution. So by the theory of evolution, I mean the idea that all species of all animals uh, that is on earth are genetically related, that they all have a common ancestor, that all species are related and have gradually changed over time. So something that started out as a genetic soup and a primordial ooze now has billions of years later turned into you and me, human beings. Started as a single cell and has become what you are today. So gradual changes happened and the primordial genetic ooze soup somehow became more and more advanced, more and more complex, and then boom, billions of years later, here we are. This may be an oversimplification of evolution, but I hope it's not a misrepresentation of what the theory is and what it states. The human started as a single-celled organism, and over a very, very long time, with gradual changes, here we are. But actually, that last part may not be so accurate. It's more of a Darwinian understanding of evolution, that these changes have taken place over a very, very long time and are very, very gradual. But that's not really what almost anyone who believes in evolution believes anymore, because that's not what the evidence shows, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Evidence doesn't show that there's been very, very gradual changes, so there's had to be some changes to the theory of evolution to make it fit with what the evidence is. And again, we will get into that. So what that change has been, though, is that most understand evolution today would say that changes from one species to another happen much quicker than originally thought. and that. 
the changes in species were more of a jump than a gradual change. And again, we'll get into that in more detail. Anyway, I hope this is at least a fair representation of evolution. I really tried to find a definition, and actually it wasn't that easy to find. I can find many articles and writings that will tell you what evolution is in 15, 30, 40, 50 paragraphs. But to find a two to three sentence explanation, it wasn't so easy. So I looked at Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and they defined evolution as the descent with modification from pre-existing species, cumulative inherited change in a population of organisms through time leading to the appearance of new forms. The process by which new species or populations of living things develop from pre-existing forms through successive generations. Now, first of all, I think there's little doubt that species adapt over time. That a species of bird with a longer beak, which allows them to eat more nectar from a flower, that they are likely to live long enough to be able to produce more birds that will probably result in birds with longer beaks surviving and being able to produce even more birds with even longer beaks, that they are going to be able to survive better than birds with shorter beaks, and therefore more longer-beaked birds will be born. That makes sense to me, and that happens. But is that evolution, or is that adaption? Now, some would argue that seeing that is the beginning of evolution of a species. But birds with longer beaks reproducing birds with more reproducing to make more birds with longer beaks is a very, very long way away from those birds turning into an entirely different species. That's a big, big jump. Adaption unquestionably happens, but evolution, is that a valid theory? Well, before getting there, and we will, it was interesting to me that one of the bullet points of evolution that I read in several places was that the way in which species evolve is not reversible. So if a species were to evolve in some way, they don't revert back to how they've been before. That the evolution is linear, not circular in any kind of way. So so once a change is made, they never go backwards to a different state because evolution just pushes things forward in a line. However, in the book God's Undertaker has science buried God Which, by the way, the answer to that question, has science buried God, is a resounding no. Science has not buried God. It is not God's undertaker. That is by no means true. But in this book, God's Undertaker Has Science Buried God, John C. Lennox, who is a mathematician and bioethicist who spent most of his teaching career at Oxford, he writes this about the finches on the Galapagos Island of Daphne Major. It is worth recording that the changes in average finch beak lengths, which had been observed during the drought period of 1977, were reversed by the same rains of 1983. So that this research is more of an illustration of cyclical change due to natural selection than it is of permanent improvement or even of a change. This reversal, however, is often not always mentioned in textbooks. So if there can be a reversal, What does that tell us? That adaption happens, and it is real, but it's not necessarily a linear, one-way, non-reversible path. I found that to be really interesting in preparing for this podcast and thought that it was worth noting that, that we can see adaption within species, and sometimes when there's a drought, the birds with longer beaks produce birds with more longer beaks. But when there's a time of rain and abundancy, 
that even the short-beaked birds survive and can reproduce, so that can affect what kind of offspring they have. And that makes sense to me as an example of adaptation. But going from those birds with longer beaks or shorter beaks turning into a whole new species, that's a big jump. That's a big jump. So again, I thought that was interesting and worth noting as I came through here in my research. So again, though, we ask the question, is evolution true? Is that a correct understanding of the world and how humans have gotten to where we are? Well, personally, I do not believe that evolution is the correct understanding of how we humans have gotten to where we are. And evolution from one species to another is too problematic for a number of reasons that are both scientific and also for some theological reasons as well. But before we get into that, if you are a Christian, or even if you're not, and you believe that evolution is correct, know this. There are many Christians that believe that evolution is compatible with Christian beliefs. And not only that, but there are many Christians who believe that evolution is true. For example, a number of prominent Christians who believe that evolution is compatible with the Christian faith, according to biologos.org, include Tim Keller, Francis Collins, and perhaps the most notable Christian who is still alive who believes that evolution is the correct understanding. Who That man is N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright believes that evolution is a correct understanding of how humans got to where we are. BioLogos also on the website lists the following Christians who believe that evolution is compatible with the Christian faith, which is actually a bit of a tricky wording. Because this list is a people this list includes people who believe that evolution could be compatible with the Christian faith, but it didn't necessarily mean that the people on this list believed that evolution was the correct understanding of how we got to where we are as humans. See, see the difference there? Some people could say, well, evolution is compatible with the Christian faith, so they made this list, while themselves not being evolutionists. So uh, an interesting wording there that I think actually needed some clarification, because some people can say, yeah, sure, uh, with the right understanding, evolution is compatible with the Christian faith, even though I don't necessarily believe that's the correct understanding. But among these people that they list as saying that they believe that evolution could be compatible with the Christian faith includes the last two popes. It also includes C.S. Lewis, who I'm not exactly sure about. So BioLogos gave a quote that they list Lewis for saying with his feelings on evolution, and I'm not entirely sure where Lewis stood on this. I would have to do some more research and look into that some more to see exactly what C.S. Lewis's feelings were on evolution. They also have Billy Graham on the list, who I really wondered about, but they quote Graham as saying this, I believe that God created man, and whether it came by an evolutionary process, and at a certain point he took this person or being and made him a living soul or not, does not change the fact that God did create man. Whichever way God did it makes no difference as to what man is and man's relationship with God. I'm actually not so sure about that. I think it does make a difference because there are some theological problems with evolution as well as some scientific problems with evolution. If evolution's true, then there's going to be some different maybe ethics or morals that we have and how we treat each other and the dignity and value of human life and human rights. I think there are a lot of different questions that can arise from evolution. I think it maybe does change some things. 
So we're going to look at some of the scientific problems with evolution, but and then we're also going to look at some of the, the theological problems with it. But let's start with the scientific. Now, just know this. If you do believe in evolution, that does not disqualify you from being a Christian. As you can see with the, the list of people that we just talked about, those people, N.T. Wright, I, I have no doubt, he has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and yet he believes in evolution. So if you believe in evolution, no, that does not disqualify you from being a Christian. I would actually love to have further conversation with you. And you should know how to contact me at this point. If you don't, I'll get to that information at the end of the episode. But if you believe in evolution, or even if you don't, you can still have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can have that saving relationship with him. And if you believe in evolution, even though I do not, if you believe in evolution, I'm not going to belittle you. I'm not going to insult you. I'm not going to degrade your beliefs. And I would ask that you do the same for me, even if we do disagree. I hope that we can still have a civil conversation about it. I believe that it's still possible even in 2022, and I hope you do as well. So what are some of the problems I see with evolution from a scientific perspective? First of all, in the scientific method, we start with observations. Richard Dawkins, who is an evolutionary biologist and taught at Oxford, defines biology to be the study of complicated things which give the impression of having been designed for a purpose. Now, that quote might, might surprise you if you know who Richard Dawkins is. He's an evolutionary biologist, as I just said, but he's also one of the world's most famous atheists. He speaks out against religion and intelligent design all the time, yet he says this, that biology is the study of complicated things which give the impression of having been designed for a purpose. Give the impression of having been designed for a purpose. But Dawkins also says, and many other scientists say that as well, but that's all just an impression. That the design that we appear to see is not really a design. It just has the, that appearance, but it really doesn't have design at all. Well, isn't one of the first things we do in science is make observations? And if we observe something to have the appearance of design, why do we all of a sudden not trust that observation? Why do we choose to ignore it? Is that good scientific method? To reject an observation on the grounds that, well, on what grounds exactly is this observation rejected? Maybe it's rejected on the grounds that it is not compatible with the worldview of some of the scientists. That it's not compatible with the end that many scientists already have in mind. They don't let the evidence take them where it leads, but they start out with where they want to go already in mind and then fit the evidence to get there, and we talked about this in our last episode. In fact, Francis Crick, who has won a Nobel Prize for being one of two people to discover the double helix structure of DNA, warns biologists do not mistake the impression of design for design. This is what he says. Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Why? Why do they have to constantly keep in mind that what they see to be designed is not really designed? Why do they have to ignore that information? Why do they have to ignore that observation? After all, if something looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims like a duck, flies like a duck, waddles like a duck, isn't it a duck? Why are these observations disregarded and, according to some, observations that should be ignored? 
Why are scientists not drawing observational inferences and saying that if something looks like it's designed, then maybe it's designed? Why are they not doing that? Well, again, because sometimes they start with the conclusion in mind instead of letting the evidence take them wherever it may. Sometimes we start with the end in mind instead of following the evidence to the destination that it takes you to. But why? Why won't some scientists let the evidence take them wherever it may? Well, if you listened to the last episode, you hopefully remember the quote from NASA scientist Robert Jastrow. And this was the quote that he had. I think it's worth quoting again. I love it and think it's beautiful. So here's what he said. I'm going to quote it in the last episode and this one again. For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. I love that quote. Showing the limitations of the questions that science can answer. That science can answer a lot of questions, but they can't answer the questions of the meaning of life. Of why are we here? Of what is important? Of, of, of what gives us meaning and purpose and fulfillment? That science cannot answer all questions. But in studying for this podcast, I came across another Jastrow quote that I thought was fitting to help us understand why there's a problem with scientists not letting the evidence take them wherever it may. So when I throw in another Jastrow quote, I thought I had to go back to that first one because it's just so good. But here's another thing that Jastrow says. He's discussing the beginning of the universe. So that's what this quote is within the context of discussing the beginning of the universe. Jastrow says this. Theologians generally are delighted with the proof that the universe had a beginning, but astronomers are curiously upset. Their reactions provide an interesting demonstration of the response to the scientific mind, which is supposedly a very objective mind. But their reactions provide an interesting demonstration of the response of the scientific mind when evidence uncovered by science itself leads to a conflict with the articles of faith in our profession. It turns out that the scientist behaves the way the rest of us do when our beliefs are in conflict with the evidence. We become irritated. We, pre we pretend the conflict does not exist. Or we paper it over with meaningless phrases. Jastrow also said this concerning Einstein's quote-unquote irritating feelings about general relativity pointing to a beginning for the universe. This is curiously emotional language for a discussion of some mathematical formulas. I suppose that the idea of a beginning in time annoyed Einstein because of its theological implications. And there it is. If we observe that living organisms have been created, if we observe that they have been designed and not evolved, if we observe that Every, the, the, the things that are here that are alive have the uh, appearance of design. If we believe that they've been intelligently created, then there are some theological implications that people may not like about that. Because make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, all that we believe has theological impl implications. Everything that we believe has theological implications, whether that is about science, whether that's about Anything in our lives, whether whatever it may be, what we believe has theological implications. All of life, everything about life does, even scientific observations. And if we let the evidence take us anywhere it may lead us to, it may take some people to some theological places 
that they are not comfortable with. But as I've argued before, if that's what you're doing, that's just not good scientific method. It's not good scientific practice. You've got to let the evidence take you on whatever road it may take you on and lead you to whatever path it may lead you to. If you start with the conclusion in mind, that is dangerous science and that is bad science. All right. So I thought that was interesting to start mentioning there with this idea that we have to have this observation ignored within science for many people that even though this has the appearance of design, it's really not designed. Why are we throwing out those observations? I thought that was interesting. But we're going to press on with some scientific evidence that leads me to believe that evolution is not a correct understanding. And just know this, there are a lot, and I mean a lot of scientists out there who do not believe that the evidence points to evolution. Some think that it's an open and shut case on evolution, that that this is no longer a theory, but it's fact, and this is what it is, and there's no dispute about it, and nobody who's got a PhD degree certainly would uh, disagree with this on evolution, but there are many, many people out there, many scientists, a whole lot of people out there with PhDs who do not believe that the evidence points to evolution. So if you have questions or doubts about evolution, you do not have to check your intelligence at the door. You can still use your brain, you can still be smart, and not believe in evolution, even if Richard Dawkins says you can't. One of Dawkins' well-known quotes is this, It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. (laughs) Okay, then. Uh, I guess Dawkins thinks I'm either ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked. I guess that's what he believes about me, but I'll say this. If you disagree with me, I don't assume you're stupid. I don't assume you're ignorant. I don't assume you're insane. I don't Assume that you are wicked. I don't think any of those things about you. What Dawkins is doing here is literally trying to belittle and bully people into believing what he believes. I'm not interested in doing that. So if you believe different than I do, let's have a conversation and a discussion about it. I think we can do that, and hopefully we can do that in a civil way. I I believe we still can. So I'm not interested in belittling or, or bullying people. As we look at some reasonable evidence to why you don't have to believe in evolution, I'm just going to state some facts and state my case. And if you don't believe, then okay, then you don't believe. And let's have a conversation and dialogue about it. Now, this is going to be a bit long on evolution, but the main point of discussion here in 2001 is evolution. 2001 is a film about evolution. So what I'm going to do here is give you three reasons why I don't believe in evolution. Now, there are actually more reasons than that. I'm sure in later episodes, at some point, we will have time and we'll go over those and we'll discuss some different reasons why I don't believe it. But here are three scientific reasons why I don't believe in evolution. I'm not exactly sure if they're my top three, but they're the three that stood out to me in preparation for this podcast and three that I'd like to share with you today. So first of all, there's a genetic problem for the survival of what is called transitional forms. There's transitional forms or or species that are in between evolving from one form to another. In their book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, Norman Geisler and Frank Turek explain it this way. For example, consider the Darwinian assertion that birds evolved gradually from reptiles over long periods of time. 
This would necessitate a transition from scales to feathers. How can a creature survive that no longer has scales but does not quite have feathers? Feathers are irreducibly complex. A creature with a structure of half a feather has no ability to fly. It would be easy prey on land, in water, and from the air. And as a halfway house between reptiles and birds, it probably wouldn't be adept to finding food for itself either. So the problem for Darwinists is twofold. First, they have no viable mechanism from getting from reptiles to birds, meaning they have no way to explain how such a jump happens. How do you explain a reptile going to a bird? How do you explain something with scales becoming something that has feathers? They have no mechanism to describe how that happens. And the second problem, they say, is that even if a viable mechanism were discovered, the transitional forms would be unlikely to survive anyway. I thought that was really interesting, the idea that something that is in between species would have a disadvantage to survive. Now, with evolution, we think of survival of the fittest, and the things that are the best thrive and survive, and they become a new species, and they even have different DNA. But what do you do in the transitional form between that if there's a slow, gradual change? And that's one of the reasons some evolu- why most evolutionists have now changed their theory, because they look at something like this, and they look at evidence and say, well, maybe it wasn't such a slow, gradual change after all, but we still believe in evolution, so let's make something else to go with it. But I think that this is really interesting here, this idea of transitional forms and one of them being able not to survive when they're between those two different species and that that would not be an advantageous evolution, but it would actually be disadvantageous. It would be something that would be against their survival, not for their survival, which would go against the very tenets of evolution. The second thing we'll look at is natural selection does not produce new body parts. So Dr. Ray Bolin, who has a PhD in molecular biology, in a chapter he wrote in a book titled Evidence for God, he explains this. A fundamental question that now needs to be addressed is how sponges, starfish, cockroaches, butterflies, eels, frogs, woodpeckers, and humans all arose from single-celled beginnings without design, purpose, or plan. All such organisms have very different body plans. How can all these different body plans arrive from mutation and natural selection? The problem of macroevolution therefore requires developmental mutations. Changes must somehow occur in how the organism is built. Structural genes tend to have little effect on the development of a body plan. But the genes that control development and thus ultimately influence the body plan tend to find expression quite early in developing. But this raises But this raises its own problems because the developing embryo is quite sensitive to early developmental mutations. He goes on to point that mutations in these genes that control key early developmental process, when they have mutations, it's usually very disadvantageous. It's usually very bad, and he writes that it's even conceivable that they will always be bad, that when these mutations happen with, happens within genes, they are not good mutations, but they are bad mutations. In other words, the mutation of early developmental genes, not a good thing, but that mutation would have to happen in order for something to evolve into a new body plan. So one thing that is made from a frog and another thing is made through a human through mutations through changes very early developmentally, but mutations in genes are not good. So that is a problem for evolution if genes are mutating 
because mutating genes is not a good thing yet. Here we have this is what needs to happen if there's going to be different body plans that start from all the same genes. There needs to be mutations for that, and mutations in genes, not a good thing. Dr. Bolin also references transitional forms of animals in evolution and writing this. Along the way, functional organisms must assume intermediate forms. But even the functionality of these intermediate organisms transforming from one body plan to another has long puzzled even the most dedicated evolutionists. Stephen Jay Gould, the late Harvard paleontologist, asked this, but how can a series of reasonable intermediates be constructed? The dung mimicking insect is well protected, but can there be any edge and only looking 5% like a turd. Those are Gould's words, not mine, but he actually makes a pretty good point. And what he is saying here is how can a dung-mimicking beetle, before it is a dung-mimicking beetle, before this beetle looks like dung, it does not at some point in evolution. So if it's a slow, gradual change, it goes from something that does not look like dung to something that only looks 5% like dung. And if something only looks 5% like dung, it's probably going to be eaten by something else because that's not dung-like enough to not be eaten. Now, if you look 100% like dung, you're probably just getting passed over, right? Nobody, nobody wants to eat that. But if you only look 5% like dung, what, what's so great about that? What advantage is there in being protected if you only have that gradual change that happens over time with that. I, I thought that was an interesting quote, and those are Gould's words, not mine, but he makes a good point. And the evolutionary answer to these problems and other problems in believing in evolution, the answer that many scientists have to that is, well, I don't know how evolution has worked that out, but I believe that it has worked because evolution! I don't know how that is, and I don't know how that works, but because I believe in evolution, I believe that it has worked. I believe it works because evolution, which is actually kind of funny, because many in the scientific community have been critical of Christianity, and they say that we have what has been called a God of the gaps understanding of the world. So the God of the gaps criticism basically says that Christians say they don't have to know or explain things. And they can just fit in the gap, fill in the gaps of knowledge by shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, that's just God at work. So basically, some of the scientific community have said Christians say, I can't explain it. Therefore, God did it. And they're critical of that view. They look at that view as being anti-science. They look at that view as being intellectually lazy as we're not searching for answers. We're just looking and say, well, there's some gaps here. And God must have done it, and we'll never be able to explain it. We'll ever never be able to know it. And there actually may be some truth to some things within a God of the gaps understanding. There may not be, we should not use that for everything, but there will be some things that are unexplained. But that's not a popular theory. That's not a, a pop, popular idea within the scientific community. But when reasonable questions are asked about the gaps in the knowledge of evolution, many scientists and evolutionists say, I don't know how it works, but it works because evolution is true. They have what is an evolution of the gaps understanding. The same thing that they criticize many Christians for, that's what they have within evolution. In fact, if we go back to John Lennox in his book, God's Undertaker Has Science Buried God, he writes this, It is surely evident that evolution of the gaps as is at least as widespread 
as God of the gaps. And he's right. Because there's a lot of gaps in evolution, and yet people still believe in that. People still say, well, I believe that this works because evolution. And they fill in the gaps with, well, it works because evolution is true. And they are guilty of what they've accused us of doing. I thought that was interesting. I think I think Lennox makes a great point. I believe that it's true that an evolution of the gaps understanding is at least as widespread as a God of the gaps understanding. And perhaps both of us, both those scientists and us as Christians, should do better. Should do better in what we are and how we are going about scientific method and how we are integrating these two fields together. And maybe, maybe we can have some more knowledge and understanding and what is there in the gaps. All right, on to the third scientific reason I question evolution and do not believe in it. And again, as I said, there are other reasons, and uh, we will focus on those at some point. But today, these are just the, the, the reasons that I'm going to focus on. And I know that we've spent a long time here talking about evolution already, but that is what 2001 is really all about. Monkeys evolving into humans and humans evolving into a new life form at the end of the movie, which is called the Star Child. 2001 is all about evolution. And when we talk about that, there are some great implications to evolution and if it is true or not and how we live and act and believe in accordance with evolution. So this is a conversation that is going to take up most of our time here today because 2001 is a film about evolution. So we press on. Number three is the fossil record. Again, we look to John Lennox in his book, God's Undertaker, to see the problems the fossil record presents for evolution. And here are the highlights of what he writes about this from his book. Geology assuredly does not reveal any such gradual organic change. Since the time of Darwin until now, there is not fossil evidence for evolution. Lennox continues by quoting paleontologist David Rupp of the Field Museum of Natural History, which houses one of the largest fossil collections in the world. This is what David Rupp says. We are now about 120 years after Darwin. And the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. We now have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. The record of evolution is still surprisingly jerky, and ironically, we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we did in Darwin's time. Stephen Jay Gould said, The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. His fellow paleontologist, Niles Eldridge, of the American Museum of Natural History, adds this. When we do see the introduction of evolutionary novelty, it usually shows up with a bang, and often with no firm evidence that the fossil did not evolve elsewhere. Evolution cannot forever be going on somewhere else. Yet that's how the fossil record has struck many a forlorn paleontologist looking to learn something about evolution. In fact, Eldred makes astonishing admission. We paleontologists have said that the history of life supports the story of gradual adaptive change, knowing all the while it does not. But why? What conceivable reason could there be for members of an academic community to suppress what they know to be the truth, unless it were something which supported a worldview which they had already decided was unacceptable? What then does the fossil record reveal? Gould wrote, the history of most fossil species include two features particularly inconsistent with the idea that they gradually evolved. Number one is stasis. Most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. They appear in the fossil record looking pretty much the same as when they disappear. 
morphological change is usually limited and directionless. Sudden, and the second one is sudden appearance. In any logical area, a species does not arise gradually by the steady transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once and fully formed. Gould and Eldridge's reading of the fossil record as revealing short periods of rapid change followed by long periods of stasis led to their development in the theory of punctuated equilibrium to attempt to explain it. The idea is that long periods of stasis are broken sporadically by sudden, by sudden large macroevolutionary jumps. So there it is. That's why many people don't believe in this gradual, slow change in one species evolving to another because in part of the fossil record, and it does not show that. So, well, well that's what we thought evolution was, but now the evidence doesn't show it. So let's go ahead and change our theory. And about those who remain gradualists, those who believe that there isn't a punctuated equilibrium, those who believe there isn't this long periods of, of nothing happening and then these jumps, but those who believe that there is still a slow, gradual evolution, this is what we read. Niles Eldridge accuses them of being weak on paleontology. His argument is that the gradualists are concerned to understand how genetic information comes to be modified over the course of time, and then they simply assert that evolutionary history is the outcome of natural selection working on available genetic variation. In other words, they simply extrapolate from what they observe in the present backwards through geological time. And that, Eldridge continues, to my paleontological eyes, is just not good enough. Simple extrapolation does not work. I found that out back in the 60s as I tried in vain to document examples of the kind of slow directional change we all thought ought to be there ever since Darwin told us that natural selection should leave precisely such tell-tale signal. I found instead that once species appear in the fossil record, they tend not to change very much at all. Species remain resistant to change as a matter of course, often for millions of years. This verdict, which is so strikingly at odds with the popular understanding of fossils, is supported by Colin Patterson, who is another paleontologist, and he says this, I will lay it on the line. There is not one such fossil, a fossil which is ancestral or transitional, there's not one such fossil like that for which one could make a watertight argument. So there you go. Just three of the various reasons that are scientifically based that have solid ground to question evolution. There are more reasons, and again, we'll probably get to them at some point, but I thought these three were interesting and that stood out to me, this idea of transitional forms, the idea of how one one thing does not produce many different body plans and how does that actually get there and, and what does that do and, and how does that happen with mutations when mutations are negative? It just doesn't make sense. And the third thing is the fossil record. The, fossil, the fossils just do not show us that evolution is true. But now I want to look at theological problems for evolution. We're actually going to look at two problems. One I believe is more problematic than the other. The first that is a problem is the question of the human soul or mind. Is the soul the mind? Is the mind the soul? Maybe, maybe not. That's a discussion that we'll save for another time. But what is important for this discussion is to know that we as humans have something within us that is immaterial. Some people believe that is the soul. Some people believe that is the mind. Some people believe the mind and soul are the same thing. Again, I think that's a discussion that we could have at some point. But, but right now, we need to just know that, that there is something within us as people that is immaterial, something that we just could not hold in our hand like we can hold other things that are made of matter. 
there's something about us that is immaterial that's not that's not made of the same stuff that the uh the the universe in other ways that matter is made of there's something within us that we cannot hold within our hands we have an immaterial mind or or soul, whatever it is that you want to call that. And how does that which is only material, how does that which is only matter, which is only the material world, how does that evolve into something that is immaterial? If you think the jump from a single-celled organism, if you think the jump from that to humans is a big jump, if, if you think that that is a, is a big jump, and, I, and it is it's a huge jump, how do we go from a single cell to being what we are right now and being so complex in the way that we are and the way that we're designed? How do we go from a single cell to, to humans? You think that's a big jump. An even bigger jump is how do we go from something that is made all of material stuff producing something that is immaterial? How do we go from matter making something that's not made up of matter? How does that jump happen? How does a a jump of evolution make the soul? How does a jump in evolution make the mind? That is a problem. The material evolving to produce the immaterial is a huge theological problem. Where do our souls come from? Where do our souls come from if evolution is true? And there are some ideas of our souls and where they come from and what that is. And we're going to get there in a couple of episodes. We'll talk about that. I have plans for it in episode six. So, so we will get there and we'll discuss the soul then. But right now, what's, in, what, what's of, of interest to keep in mind is that the ma- matter producing immaterial stuff is a problem for evolution. Where do our minds or souls really come from then? I think they come from God. It's part of what it means to be made in his image. and. God, who is spirit, can without difficulty make something within us that is also immaterial. This mind-body problem is not one that evolution can solve, but God can provide answers for it. Our souls come from God, that he takes something that is immaterial and makes us who are made of matter, and, and, and we have both of those within us, an immaterial soul and also a body that is made of stuff. Evolution cannot explain how that happens, but a belief in God can. So there's a a theological problem there for evolution. But the second theological problem, I believe, is the most problematic, the most, the biggest theological problem for evolution is the problem of death. Death is a significant problem throughout the Bible, a problem that Jesus is able to overcome, but it's still a huge problem. But Jesus overcomes it. And death is a result of the fall, spiritual death, but also physical death. Spiritual death in terms of separation from God and physical death in terms of my body, your body, will someday die. Death in the scriptures never appears to be a part of God's original plan. However, if evolution were true, even God guided evolution, then death must have always been a part of God's plan from the beginning. And if death has always been a part of God's plan, why is it something that Jesus had to overcome? Why is it such a problem if it's part of God's design? Romans 6, 19-23 says this, I am, using a, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from 
What, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the results eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. If you sin, death is the result. Death is the result of sin, not the result of God's original plan. In Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, we read this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus, he shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Death is a problem, not the plan. To overcome this problem, evolutionists have to get very creative. They talk about how the death that is a problem is only a spiritual death. But if this is the case, why is Jesus bodily resurrected? Why does Paul write that we will be resurrected like Jesus will be resurrected? That we will receive a new glorified body like Jesus' glorified body? Or some evolutionists say that death is only a problem once humans have reached the point that we are human. So whatever point it is in evolution, and there must be some point in evolution where humans become what we are now, at that point, only then does death become a problem. But this still makes death a part of God's plan. It still makes, God, it still makes death God-ordained. It becomes part of his plan, not a problem. That just doesn't fit with what we see in the scriptures. That, that, that doesn't fit. What we see in the scriptures is that death is a result of the fall and sin, not a part of God's preordained plan. And if death, again, is part of God's plan, why is it something that needs to be overcome? God would be very okay with lots of things dying over a very long time just to be able to get to where we are now. Death would be okay with God, and it would be part of his plan, and it would be what he had always intended for death to be on this planet. But I think when we look at the scriptures, what we see is that death is not a part of God's plan to be on this planet, but it's a part, but it's a part of this planet. It is here on this planet because of the choices that we have made, because of the fall, because of sin. The wages of sin is death. Death is the biggest theological problem to evolution, and it is a problem that evolution cannot overcome. It's a huge problem. So those scientific reasons that we've mentioned, those three that I've mentioned, and these two theological problems lead me to believe that evolution is not true. And again, if you don't agree with me, then let's have a conversation, let's have a discussion, and I'll get to how you can contact me at the end of this episode so that we can have that conversation. I would love to hear from you, whether you believe like I believe or whether you believe differently. I'd love to hear from you and have that conversation. But for now, let's finally get back to the movie. And what is this monolith? What is this thing that appeared outside this cave with these monkeys? Why is it here? Who put that there? And what does this all mean? So when the monolith appears with the monkeys, it isn't the only time we see it, actually. We also see it when it's been, uh, it's been buried, but it's been dug up and it's been found on the Clavius base on the moon. And Later on, we also see it orbiting Jupiter, and then we also see it in the room with Dave at the end of the movie. So what is it? 
what is this big black rectangle? Where did it come from? What is it doing? What does it mean? We're going to wait until we get to the end of the movie to discuss that in full, because I I think recapping what happens with the monolith throughout the film will, will actually give us some of those answers and the meaning behind it. So once we get to the end of the film, we'll go there and we'll discuss that and we'll take a look at it. But for now, let's get back to the movie. And the first group of monkeys, after they defeat the second group, the leader of the first group throws the bone into the air. And as the bone is spinning up in the air, it fades out of view and then is replaced by a long, very thin and narrow, very bone-looking spaceship. And when I saw this, I wrote down in my notebook, from monkeys with bones to humans with spaceships, look how far we have come. Look at where the dawn of man started, with monkeys and bones, according to 2001, and now they are flying spaceships. I think that's what is being said here. Shows just how far people have evolved. Although, as we've just learned, I would disagree with that. But that's the idea here within 2001. Look how far we've come. Look how far we have evolved. And then we see lots of spaceships and space stations are shown for several minutes just flying around with instrumental music playing. And then we cut to one of the spaceships with a passenger on board who is sleeping. But his pen is floating in the air. And his pen is long and narrow and maybe kind of bone-like in structure. I'm not sure about this, but I did write down here in my notebook, the pen is mightier than the sword? More of a question than a statement, as I'm not really sure this is the point that's being made here, but maybe it is. The world of 2001 seems to be very peaceful, although I suppose we don't know much about how things are going on the Earth, but I I think here that maybe we see the bone of the monkeys has been replaced with the pen for the humans. Maybe this is a bit of a stretch, maybe not. I'm not really sure. I, I try not to read too much into things with what I'm doing here, but I'm certainly looking at movies and books with different eyes as I prepare for this podcast. I'm looking for things to stand out and to stick out for me. So even in, for some books and movies and, and episodes later on, I've already been, I, I read a couple lines into the book and I'm like, oh, here we go. Here it is. Here it is. I just watched a couple of minutes of the movie and I'm already making some different connections. So I'm watching these things with different eyes, but I'm constantly trying to make sure that I don't read too much into it. So I thought maybe this might be a point where I have read too much into it. I'm not really sure here, but I think it does give me some, I think it does give us some indication, or it's just another example of that statement, look how far we've come. We humans have replaced the primitive bone weapon with the pen because we're just that sophisticated now. Look how far we've come. I think it just enforces this idea more, especially in the world of 2001, where it seems to be a world of peace, a world without war, at least as far as we know. We don't know anything of war or conflict, and we only see one international interaction on a spaceship, and it all seems very peaceful. So I see this pen floating through space here as another, just another example of a look how far we've come kind of moment. Back to the movie, and we see that a Dr. Hayward Floyd is going to the Clavius base on the moon because something odd is happening there. Clavius is not allowing any anyone to come there. They've denied emergency landing for a ship, and they have no contact with anyone. And there's a, a worry that there may be an epidemic of some kind at Clavius. And after these past couple of years that we've been in, I can understand how they would have a worry about an epidemic 
being at Clavius. And then we are back to the calming music and shots of spaceships as Floyd travels to the moon. Then probably the second biggest laugh of the film for me, I think there were only really two moments where I laughed out loud, but this was, was one of them, and I think it was the second funniest moment in the film for me. But here we see a sign for a zero-gravity toilet. And the passengers are advised to read the instructions before use. I think that's good advice. I'm not sure the logistics of a zero-gravity toilet, and I'm glad that I'm pretty sure that's not something that I'm ever going to have to personally worry about in my lifetime. But if that ever comes up, you can better believe that I'm going to read those instructions in great detail before using a zero-gravity toilet. But eventually, we see uh, Dr. Floyd gather with a council of some sort, and they are discussing what has really happened on Clavius Space. The cover story is, of course, the epidemic at Clavius, but that's really not what's happening. So they, the governing body, is lying to the people. Is that okay? Is it ever okay for the government to lie to the people, even if it is for the people's best interest? Or at least... They will say it's for the people's best interest, but that's according to those who are telling the lie. So can we even believe that it really is for the people's best interest if they're lying in the first place? Or maybe they're lying not to give information to opposing country or people. I have a hard time justifying outright lying by government. I guess I could understand maybe if they just don't say anything, if they just remain silent, but maybe there is some kind of lie by omission in there, which would be problematic. So this is an interesting question for me. How much does a government have to tell the people? Do they always have to be 100% transparent and tell everything, or can they just refuse to say anything? And is that okay? Is not telling a lie, but oh, maybe you just don't tell the whole truth, so we're only going to be selective in what we say, and we're not going to answer some questions. What do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. What are the obligations of a government to tell the truth to the people? I think that government should be honest with their people and should tell them their truth, but I can also understand how we're not going to say everything we know about everything because somebody could then use that information to harm us. So I understand how some information may not be shared, but I don't think I can ever justify or understand or advocate for a government to knowingly, willingly, purposefully lie to its people like they do here, saying, no, what's happened to Clavius is an epidemic. But that's really not what's happened at all. I don't think that's justifiable by a government. Maybe not saying anything, maybe. I think you can justify that if we're just not going to answer and just not tell you everything we know. That's much more justifiable to me and understandable than just coming out and saying, well, here's the cover story. I don't think we can justify that. But what do you think? How much of an obligation does a government have to be honest with its people and to what degree? I'd love to hear from you. But all the members on the council are told the truth, and they have to sign oaths of secrecy so that they will not tell what's really happening at Clavius. And what has really happened is that they found something. They have found something that appears to be that appeared to be deliberately buried on the moon in what they say was more than 4,000 years ago. And of course, it is the monolith. Or it is a monolith. Now, watching the movie, I thought that anytime we see a monolith, it's the same one throughout the film. So the one we see outside the cave of the monkeys is the same one we see buried on the moon, which is the same one we see outside of Jupiter, which is the same one we see in the room with Dave. I thought they were all the same one. However, when I was reading some different things and looking at different books for this, 
there was people that said that their understanding was that it was different monoliths each time. I thought it was all the same one, but anyway, whatever it may be, if it's the same monolith, if it's a different one, one of them has been found at Clavius. And of course, what has happened here is that something has been found buried on the moon, something that is not natural, something that does not belong there, something that was purposefully buried on the moon, and that implies that someone or something must have put it there, some kind of extraterrestrial life, or some kind of alien has buried this monolith on the moon. And I think there are a couple things to discuss here. One is something that made the social media rounds in December of 2021, which was an article headline claiming something to the effect of NASA just hired 24 theologians to assess how the world would react to the discovery of extraterrestrial life. I don't know if you saw this or not, but I actually had a friend contact me about this, and he was expecting to hear an announcement any day that that the grays were real, that the little short aliens with the big triangular kind of shaped head with those big eyes, that those were real. He was expecting that announcement any day because NASA had just hired some theologians to see how people would feel about finding extraterrestrial life. Well, well, we're still waiting for that announcement. It's my understanding that it may not exactly be correct to say that NASA hired these theologians, whoever they may be. I could only find who one of them was. But from what I found... Uh, NASA's astrobiology program did grant some money to what is called the Center for Theological Inquiry. And NASA gave them some money to assess societal implication for NASA's astrobiological and search for life efforts. So NASA was not necessarily involved in the selection of the researchers or the theologians within this uh, program. And according to the agency spokesperson, the fellows worked independently through the Center for Theological Inquiry and were not considered NASA employees. So maybe NASA really didn't hire all these theologians, or maybe that's a cover story. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't have any reason or to know one way or another if this is a cover story or not. I have no reason to believe that it is. But the, so, so I just thought it was interesting, though, that this article title came out and, and grabbed a lot of attention that, that NASA has hired some theologians to see how people would feel about there being extraterrestrial life. But NASA has been for a while preparing for this and thinking of what would it mean? What would be the implications if they were to actually go out with this astrobiological and search for life efforts, if they were to go and find some kind of life on another planet? What would that mean? What would, it, what would happen if we were to announce that a conscious extraterrestrial life had been found? What would happen in that case? So I just thought that was interesting that this headline grabbed some, grabbed some attention, and it might have also been a bit of a misleading headline, according to NASA. But anyway, I thought that was something uh, worth discussing and something that I found interesting, and I don't know if you did too. But that also brings me to my second point here, a question which I told you in the last episode I would answer for you. And that question is, are aliens real? Do extraterrestrial beings exist? Well, before I answer that for you, and I will answer that, let's define our terms. What is an extraterrestrial being or what is an alien? I use those two terms interchangeably, an extraterrestrial or an alien. What is that? According to the Google machine, an extraterrestrial means of or from outside the Earth or its atmosphere. Merriam-Webster says an extraterrestrial is originating, existing, or occurring outside the Earth or its atmosphere. 
I'm not sure I love either one of those definitions for an extraterrestrial or alien with an R discussion, so here's how I will define an extraterrestrial being. I will say that an extraterrestrial being is a being that is not native to Earth. It is a being that is not originated on Earth. So when I'm talking about an alien, I mean a being that is native to another planet or place or world other than Earth. That's all I mean. Pretty simple definition. An alien, an extraterrestrial, is a being that is not native to Earth. Now, when I have discussed this question before, do aliens exist, and tell people that I have an answer for them, and then tell people my definition, I've had some people say, what, you're going to tell me that God's an extraterrestrial? I think that's an interesting guess. But no, I'm actually not going to tell you that. God cannot be an alien or an extraterrestrial being because in order to be that, you have to have originated from a different place other than Earth. You have to be native to another planet or place. But God is not originated from anywhere because God has always been. Is God a native of Earth? No. Is God a native of any other planet? No. Why? Because God was before any of these planets were. God is pre-existent of all planets, so he cannot be native or he cannot originate on any of those planets because God is without beginning or ending. God has always been. There was never a time when God was not. But there was a time when planets were not, so therefore God cannot be native to any planet. So we could not, according to that definition of alien or extraterrestrial, say that God is extraterrestrial or alien. Well, then what is God? He is completely other. He is completely different from any other being that has ever been or ever will be. God is in a category all his own that nothing else is in. And that's and nothing else will ever be in. God will only be in that category, the divine, the eternal, the one without beginning or without end. So God cannot fit that definition of extraterrestrial or alien because God is not native to anywhere because before any of them were created, God was there. God was the one creating those places, not the one who was created on those places like we were. We were created on earth. That's not the way it was with God. God is the creator, not the created. So God cannot fit that definition of alien or extraterrestrial. But I still haven't answered the question, do aliens exist? Well, according to my definition of an alien, as a being who is not native to Earth, there may be something that fits that definition. What about angels? Angels are being that, as best as I can tell, are not native to Earth. In Genesis 21.17 and Genesis 22.11, an angel calls out to someone on Earth, but they call out from heaven. In 21.17, an angel calls out to Hagar. In 22.11, an angel calls out to Abraham. Both times we're told that angel calls out from heaven. In Psalm 148, 1 through 2, we read this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. And in Luke 2, 13 through 14, we read, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, what is a heavenly host? The Greek word for host, tzva, means that that which goes forth 
relating primarily to an army, to a, a group of soldiers, a, a company, a, a uh, we might say that today, a company, uh, as using that kind of military language, that they would be a company or a gathered group. A heavenly host is a group of heavenly beings. And then after the angels are there and they tell the shepherds about the birth of Jesus, the angels, we are told, returned to heaven, giving indication that that's where they came from. More than once, Jesus refers to angels in heaven. So if angels are native to heaven, then they are, by my definition, extraterrestrial. Angels are aliens. Now, they are not the little green beans with the big heads and the big eyes and the small mouths. They're not flying around in UFOs. They're not abducting people and all those kinds of things. But angels, according to that definition, are not native to Earth. Actually, this idea of angels being aliens is nothing new. What the implication for this is, is if angels are aliens, then the devil and his demons are aliens too. If they're fallen angels, if they are something that is not native to Earth, then they are extraterrestrial. They are alien. And I've heard this theory, this is nothing new. Again, I've heard theories that alien abduction stories are actually demon possessions. Now, I'm not 100% certain on that. I'm not making that argument or that case. I don't know what alien abductions are and those claims. That's some really interesting things that I've not spent a whole lot of time thinking about and might have to, and maybe at some point we'll get to those. And what does that mean? And what are those implications? And what happens there? But I find it a really interesting theory that for a long time people said that alien abductions are just demon possessions. I, I don't know that. I don't know if demons are behind it or something else or what that may be. I'm not exactly certain. But I do know that demon possession, the ability of demons to possess people, is real. And this idea of demon possession as the, the uh, alien abductions or just demon possessions is an interesting idea to me. But I'm not certain about it. I'm not necessarily making that case. I'm just saying that I've heard that theory before because demons are not native to earth so that they appear to be beings they, they appear to be aliens that abduct people and that's what possessions could be in some way shape or form i don't know about that i'm not 100 percent certain on that and i think it's an interesting theory but angels being aliens according to definition is nothing new that's not a new theory according to that definition aliens are angels and angels are aliens so what does that mean? And what are the other implications for that? And all those other kind of questions. I don't have those answers, but I feel like I've delivered on answering your question that I promised that I would. Are aliens real? Do they really exist? Yes. Angels are aliens since they are not native to Earth. There you have it. Now you know, but that doesn't mean that angels are abducting people or flying UFOs around. It just means they're not beings that are native to Earth. And I think we see in the scriptures heavenly hosts, and other beings as well that are not native to Earth, that are heavenly beings that could be, by that definition, aliens. So there you go. You got it. I answered the question for you. Back to the movie, and eventually Floyd takes um, the ship and he makes it to Clavius. And I say that he eventually makes it to Clavius because it doesn't take him a lot of time to get there. It takes him a lot of on-screen movie time. It takes him real time to get there. So usually in most movies, we would hear that Floyd has to go to Clavius Space for whatever, and then the next thing, boom, he'd be at Clavius Space. We'd know that he just got there however he did. He just took a ship there, and we don't need to see that process of how he got there. Let's just move the story along. But 2001 has a way of slowing down the storytelling. 
when Floyd's ship is landing at Clavius, we see the whole process. Most movies would just skip past that, but not 2001. Honestly, I find that kind of annoying to begin with, but as I continued to watch the movie, it started to grow on me. I started to appreciate watching the process, experiencing what someone in that situation is experiencing. I started to appreciate it while also realizing that if you took that stuff out, you pretty much have the same story, and it would be much shorter, but it might not be as effective as a movie in telling the story that it's trying to tell. I found it interesting that uh, Brian P. Stone, in his book Faith and Film, Theological Themes at the Cinema, that he writes that there's less than 40 minutes of total dialogue in the movie. Again, our runtime is somewhere around 2 hours and 20 minutes, as we've already discussed. We'll say it's around there, but less than 40 minutes of actual dialogue. So if we cut down on all the slow-moving spaceships and instrumentals in the background, we could have a much shorter movie, but I don't think we would have the same story. We wouldn't have the same experience. I found that to be interesting. But the music and the slowing down and the journey is important to Kubrick, it would seem. In my research for this, I kept coming across how Kubrick used Richard Strauss's Thus Spake Zathrustra, and I said, wait a minute, that's R- R- Richard Strauss? Who's that? That's a, that's a Frederick Nietzsche book, not Richard Strauss. I don't even know who Richard Strauss is. So I went to my bookshelf, and I was right. The Thus Spake Zathrustra is a Nietzsche book. So I googled Richard Strauss, and he wrote a musical piece by the same name as that Nietzsche book, Thus Spake Zathrustra. I didn't know that, and one of the reasons that I might not have known about that Richard Strauss piece is because here's where I'm going to tell you something about myself so you can get to know me a little better. Usually I do this at the beginning of the episode. I give you a little tidbit of who I am or something interesting about me, but I thought it would be better here, so I I thought it fit into the episode better here, and you had to stick around to get to know this one, but here it is. I don't like music. I know that's strange but I really don't enjoy music. Now, there's actually a term that's used to describe what's called the the condition of not liking music, and that term is musical anhedonia. That basically means that I don't derive pleasure from listening to music. Now, most of you, when listening to music, you hear music and it stimulates the the, the pleasure center of your brain, and you have dopamine or endorphins or whatever it is, that are released in your brain and you feel good and you enjoy listening to the music because it stimulates that part of your brain and makes you feel good. But not so for me and others who have musical anhedonia. Some studies say as much as 5% 5 of people have this. I think that's kind of a bit high, actually. There are many studies out there that say about 3% of people have this, which I think is a much closer number. I once told this to a room of about 150 people that I didn't like music and didn't enjoy it. It was part of an illustration that I was making. And in a room of 100, about 150 people, there were four of us who had musical anhedonia. 3% of 150 is 4.5. And since you can't have half a person, 4% was pretty spot on. Four of us out of 150. Now, I don't have any songs downloaded on my phone and never had. In fact, I had a 10 to 12 hour drive from my parents' house to college, depending on traffic and weather and all those kinds of things, about a 10 to 12 hour drive. And I made that drive more than once in silence. It was really before the days of podcasts, or I probably would have been listening to podcasts the whole time, which is what I do now on on car rides. But I could sit in that car for 10 hours, just me and my thoughts, and it was all right. It was good. I solved so many of the world's problems in my head during those trips. 
It was great. I enjoyed them. And it also gave me time to think about things. And some of those things that I thought about, I've actually worked on projects with, and I've actually written about, or I've actually made a podcast about, or all these different things in my life started by thinking about things in silence on those trips. There may be two times a year, though, that I get an urge to listen to a specific song. And then I get about a fourth of the way through the song and I say, all right, I'm good. I've heard enough. I can move on. So I don't really enjoy music at all. Don't get the urge to listen to it very often. And that's something that is very unusual about me. If only about 3% of people are in that same boat. But anyway, looking through this and seeing how Kubrick used this music and me not really enjoying music, I just thought that it was something that I could tell you this week so that you could get to know a little bit more about me. And this one's pretty odd since I fall into the vast minority of people who do not like music. But anyway, back to the movie. Now that you know a little bit more about me, let's get back to the movie. And at Clavius, Floyd touches the monolith and it lets out an ear-piercing ring. And we see that shot of Floyd looking up at the monolith with the sun shining above it, just like the monkey did earlier. Again, it is a look how far we have come moment. Before it was a monkey on earth looking at the sun over the monolith, but now it's a man on the moon looking at the sun over the monolith. Look how far we have come, is what that's saying. Then the screen cuts to the writing and tells us, then then we have a cut screen and there's writing that tells us Jupiter mission 18 months later. And we're on a new ship with a new crew. And there are five of them, but we only ever get to meet two of them because the other three are in hibernation or some kind of suspended animation. But the two we meet are Dr. Dave Bowman, who is the commander of the mission, and Dr. Frank Poole, who is the deputy commander. But we do have another crew member. I suppose you could call it or him maybe another crew member, but it is a supercomputer that runs the ship. Hale 9000, simply known as Hale. And in an interview, Hale claims this about himself. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definitions of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. I think it would be fair to say that Hale has a God complex. Now, a God complex is when someone, or in this case, something, since Hale is artificial intelligence and Anyway, either someone or something has an unshakable belief characterized by consistently inflated feelings of personal ability, privilege, or infallibility. So Hale is in charge of everything on the ship, and he refers to himself as a conscious entity who has emotions, but he's been programmed to have emotions. So are those genuine emotions, or are those real, or are those not? I'm not sure necessarily that those are real or not, but what we're going to do is we're going to save that conversation of artificial intelligence and much of that for next episode, where we're going to focus on Philip K. Dick's book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's the the, the book that the movie Blade Runner was based off of, and we're going to get into artificial intelligence and androids. We're going to get into those things in depth on our next episode, so we're not going to take the time. Uh, to talk about it here, so you'll have to tune in next time to hear about artificial intelligence and androids and all those different kinds of things, and what does that mean, and are they conscious, and do they have a soul? All those different kinds of things will be discussed either in the next episode, focusing on Philip K. Dix, do androids dream of electric sheep, or 
the episode after that, which we will get to, and I'll tell you what that is at the end of this podcast. But back to 2001, we see another example of human loneliness in science fiction, which we've seen a lot in this podcast. We've seen a lot of examples of loneliness and how negative loneliness is. The loneliness we see here in 2001 is Frank as he celebrates his birthday alone with a video message from his parents, and that's all. He's alone on his birthday. And 2001 does a good job of capturing the longness of space travel and the loneliness and boredom of taking more than a year to get where you're going. 2001 makes something which is makes something that is not so normal, space travel. Space travel is not so normal. I mean, that sounds like something that would be fun and exciting and awesome and amazing. That's not something you get to do every day, space travel. That sounds great. So it makes take something that's not so normal, and it makes it seem very normal and not exciting at all. It drags on and on and on. 2001 does a very well job of showing and explaining that. Eventually, we get to the point in the movie where Hale runs a diagnostic on the ship and reports that the AE-35 unit, whatever that is, we're not told, it doesn't matter, but we're told that the AE-35 unit will have a 100% failure within the next 72 hours. So they contact Mission Control, and the Mission Control examines the A-35 and decides to replace it before it fails. And then there's that iconic shot of Dave walking down the white and black hallway in his red-orange space suit. Sometimes it looks more orange than red, sometimes more red than orange, but it's such an iconic shot. I love that shot of him just walking down that hallway. It's great. And he goes and replaces the AE-35, and they take a look at it, the original part that's been replaced, and they say that there's nothing wrong with it, that it looks to be okay. And Hale wants them to put, put it back put back the original part and take out the replacement one so we can see why it's going to fail so we can learn more about it. But Mission Control thinks that Hale may have an error in predicting the failure. Mission Control, they say that they have a double Hale 9000, and the double Hale 9000 thinks that the Hale we know on the Discovery spaceship, that's the name of the the ship they're traveling to Jupiter on, the Discovery spaceship, they they think the, the Discovery's Hale is wrong. The hail we know says that if he is wrong, it's due to human error and not his. And here we will see Hale's pride and say maybe Hale is somewhat human after all. Because pride is certainly a human problem. Pride has even sometimes been called the root of all evil. But is that true? Is pride really the root of all evil? Well, first of all, let's define what we mean by pride. Because there's multiple definitions, and some forms of pride may be okay, while others, perhaps, are not. By pride, I don't mean Webster's first definition of pride. That's not the kind of pride we're talking about. They defi- their first definition of pride is a feeling that you respect yourself and deserve to be respected by other people. That seems like a good thing. You should have self-respect. That's okay. You should feel like you can respect yourself and that you should be respected by other people. I think that's okay that that you're going to respect others and you're going to respect yourself, I think that's a good thing to have, that kind of feeling of self-respect. I get that. You should have that. That's okay. It's also okay to feel good about things that you've done. Like, I'm proud of this podcast and what it is and how it's come together. So I, I take pride in some things that I've done or some things that my family has done or things that other people that I know have done. I celebrate with them and take pride in the good things that they've done. I don't think that's the kind of pride I'm talking about either. Then that's Webster's third definition of pride. 
a feeling of happiness that you get when you or someone you know does something good or difficult, whatever it may be, when they accomplish a task that they have been working on. I don't think that's the kind of pride that we're looking at here either. But Webster's second definition of pride, a feeling that you are more important or better than other people, that kind of pride, that's a problem. When pride says that you are better than others and they make mistakes or do something wrong, they are less than you. They are the ones who are in error. Those, they are the ones who have done something wrong. They are the ones who are not as good as you. And that is what Hale does here. This isn't my mistake, Hale says. It's yours because I am without error. That's some pretty big pride. But is that pride really the root of all evil? Well, in Proverbs 8, 12 through 13, we read this. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So obviously pride in the I am better than everyone and everything else sense is not good. It's not a good thing to have that. That is not something that we should have. However, the Bible doesn't actually say that pride is the root of all evil. But some come to that conclusion from Adam and Eve in the garden and eating the fruit and choosing their way over God's way and saying that I know better than God, that that I'm more equipped to make decisions than him, that I'm better than him, that I know more than God and making that decision. Then some also, so, so that story of Adam and Eve eating in the garden, so that account of them as well as 1 John 2, 15 through 17 have led some to believe that the pride is the root of all evil. And here's what 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Pride doesn't come from God, but from the world, from our sinful nature, our fallen nature within us that we've talked about before on this podcast. So I'd say that pride is the root of all kinds of evil. Maybe not 100%, but pride leads to a number of sins and is certainly at the root of many kinds of evil and things that we do. And things that we do that are sinful. So, so that idea of pride is certainly, I think, at the base of many of many of the sins that we have. That it is that root of all kinds of evil. Maybe not all of them, but certainly all kinds of evil. But throughout the scriptures, we're told not to have pride, and and sometimes we're told directly, "Don't don't have pride." But other times, we're told instead what we should have. So so sometimes we have negative commandments that we say like, right, right. So, so don't be prideful would be a negative commandment telling us what not to do. So negative in that sense. But then sometimes there are positive commands where it's telling us what to do. So there's a negative telling you what not to do, a positive telling you what to do. And I think one of the scriptures that we have that tells us best of how to live within this overarching uh, discussion on pride is Philippians 2.13 excuse me, Philippians 2, 3 through 11, when we see what is in here, it's giving us the the positive part of that. It's not telling us what not to do, but instead, here in Philippians, Paul tells us what we should do. And Philippians 2, 3 through 11 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's the humility that Jesus had, that he makes himself nothing, that he makes himself a servant, that he becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. And when we look at Jesus and the example that he has, that, that we should have that too then, that we should have that kind of humility, not, not pride, not thinking that we're better or more important than others, but instead we should empty ourselves. We should become a servant and be obedient. That humility of Jesus gives us the example of how we should live. And I love that passage in Philippians. In the movie, Hell has a pride problem. It seems to me that he thinks of himself as an equal, or maybe even as being above any other being in the universe. Sometimes, though, we may fall into that trap where we make ourselves our own, the most important thing in the universe. We think that we know best. We put ourselves first. We do what we want, when we want, how we want it. And we get upset when things don't go our way and things become about us. But that's not how it should be. Don't be like Hale. Be like Jesus. In the movie, Dave questions whether or not the problem is with Hale or if it's a human error. So he and Frank go into a pod where Hale cannot hear them, but they make a very serious error, what turns out to be a fatal error as Hale cannot hear them, but he can read their lips. So they decide to put the A35 back and see if it fails. They decide that if Hale is wrong and it doesn't fail, then he must have malfunctioned in some way, so they're going to have to disconnect him, which would be very difficult to do since Hale's in control of everything that's on the ship. And then we cut to the uh, black screen where it tells us it's intermission, pops up on the screen. And even though we are much closer to the end than the beginning, certainly in terms of this podcast, I think in terms of the film too, nonetheless, we're told that it is intermission. And then we get back to the movie and it's decided that Frank will replace the AE-35. And while he's outside the ship replacing it, he needs to go on a moonwalk. Well, not a moonwalk, he's not on the moon. He needs to go on a spacewalk to replace that so he's outside the ship replacing it when he becomes adrift in space. Hale claims not to know what's happened. So Dave goes out in a pod to save him. And while Dave is out there, Hale turns off the life support for the other three scientists that are all with them on this journey, and they die. And then Dave grabs Frank with the arms on this pod. This pod that he has has some arms, and he grabs Frank with it. And then he goes and he tells Hale, open the pod bay doors, Hale. And Hale's very well-known response, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. Hale tells Dave that this mission, whatever it may be, that this mission is too important to jeopardize. I had a question here if the monolith had affected Hale in some way. Had the monolith made Hale self-aware? Is there something going on with Hale and the monolith? But I don't see any evidence for that. It's just something that I thought of and 
thought maybe a possibility, but I don't think in any way that proved to be true. But I did have some questions of what effect would the monolith have on technology, on something that's artificial, but I don't think we ever find out the answer to that question. Anyway, Dave is stuck outside and Hale will not let him in and Hale will not respond. So Dave makes a heart-wrenching decision. He has to let Frank go because he has to use one of the claws on the arms to to, to manually open the door to get back into the ship. So Dave lets Frank go. Dave gets back in, and Hale knows what he's going to do. He's going to remove Hale's memory unit. I think the the way that I understood this, it would basically be like a factory reset, where he'd be taking everything back to the original settings and just wiping everything else from Hale. And then Hale tells Dave he is afraid. But eventually, through a long process and Hale talking a lot and, and a dialogue that they have there, eventually Dave does get the reset on Hale. So the computer is no longer a threat to Dave's life. Then a pre-recorded message by Floyd comes on telling them about the monolith buried at Clavius and just how and, and how it's evidence of extraterrestrial life. The monolith sent a signal to Jupiter, and then it's done nothing else. So that's why the crew has been going to Jupiter, because that's where the monolith broadcasts a a message to. Then we see on the screen the words that are written, Jupiter and beyond infinite. And Dave gets to Jupiter, and another or the same monolith is there. I don't know. I think it was the same one. Some other people think it was other ones. I don't know, but there's a monolith there. And Dave gets into a pod, and then lights start going past him like he's traveling at warp speed, but it's quite the light show. And eventually, Dave is all of a sudden in a house, and the pod is there with him. Where he is, how he got there, we are not told, and we have no idea. Then he looks, and there's an astronaut in another room. And it's an old Dave. He has some gray hair and some wrinkles. So young Dave is looking at old Dave, and then there's only old Dave, and young Dave is no longer there. Then old Dave looks into a room, and someone is at a table. It's an even older Dave. And then even older Dave comes to look for only slightly older Dave, but even older Dave is the only one left. So then even older Dave sits down at the table and looks into another room and sees oldest Dave. And this, my friends, got the biggest laugh of the film for me, as it just entered into the realm of the absurd and the very ridiculous, I literally laughed out loud. When he when he looks into that room, I literally said, what, is he going to see an even older Dave? And then he looks, and there's an even older Dave. The oldest Dave is what I've named him, because he's the oldest one that we see there. So there's an oldest Dave, and it got, it got me when I saw it. It just, it just, it got me. The oldest Dave, though, he is laying in the bed, and he is very, very old. And he points at something at the foot of the bed, and it is the monolith. Then they cut back to the bed, and oldest Dave is no longer there. But a baby is. And a baby that's still in a, the womb or still in a, a bubble of some sort. I don't know, but he has Dave's eyes. So oldest Dave has become this baby. And this baby is often referred to as the star child. So then we cut back to the monolith and cut back to this bubble baby looking at Earth from outer space. And that's it. End movie, roll credits, and I literally write down in my journal at this point, what did I just watch? Especially in regards to the star child. What was that? Well, it's just another step in human evolution. The next step to take. Personally, I don't see that happening, something like that. You know my thoughts on evolution by now, but it's interesting to me that this monolith, whatever it is, wherever it came from, whoever put it there, who's ever in control of it, 
It's the monolith that pushes evolution forward. Whether it's the monkeys in the beginning of the film who, once they touch that, they get some kind of advantage and gain some kind of knowledge, it would seem. So whether it's the monkeys in the beginning of the film or whether it's Dave, oldest Dave, becoming the star child at the end, the monolith pushes evolution ahead. So evolution in 2001 is not just a natural process, but it's impacted by the monolith. An outside force is guiding, maybe that's too strong of a word, maybe it's an outside force that is influencing or impacting evolution. But nonetheless, it's not just a natural process, it has an outside force that's affecting evolution in 2001. I thought that was interesting, and it actually could fit into a theistic, God-guided evolution understanding. So if you are a theistic evolutionist where you believe that God has guided evolution, I think that 2001 could fit well within that the framework in some ways because there's something from outside nature that is affecting that is affecting evolution and pushing it forward and 2001 it's the monolith for you maybe your understanding is it's god that's doing that and pushing that forward if you're a theistic evolutionist but anyway i found that to be interesting that that's what the monolith is and that's what it does it pushes pushes evolution forward meaning that something from outside of the natural order here on earth is impacting evolution i found that to be interesting But there you have it for 2001, A Space Odyssey. Evolution discussed at length, pride, and the existence of extraterrestrial beings, all that, and a little bit more covered here in this episode. So thank you for listening. Is there anything else from 2001 that you noticed that I missed? If there is, I would love to hear from you, or if you want to continue that discussion on evolution and how you feel about it, you can either tweet me or tag me on Instagram at Theology and Sci-Fi, all one word, and we spell sci-fi correctly around here, S-C-I-F-I. Or you can find me uh, at Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast on Facebook, or you can even email me at theologyandsci-fi at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you and would truly love to hear you reach out and to have a a conversation and know what you think of some of the issues we've discussed and some of the questions that have been raised. I would also greatly appreciate it if you give me a following on the podcast platform you listen on as well as rate and review. That would be great. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend and let's try to get some more people to listen. This has truly been fun and I look forward to the next episode. So the next episode, we're going to discuss Philip K. Dick's book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And it will be released on February 14th. That's going to be episode five. Then looking ahead, in episode six, we'll be discussing another book. We're going to do two book episodes back to back, two in a row. In episode six, we'll be looking at Clifford D. Samack's book, A Choice of Gods. And that will be released on February 28th. I just want to let you know what was coming ahead so you can either get those books and read them or you can start listening to them on the audio version if you want to do that. I've talked to a lot of people who like to watch or read the things before we actually discuss it and listen to this podcast. So thank you for that. I think that's great to be able to do that so so we can go through this together. So next week, next episode will be Philip K. Dick's book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The one after that, Clifford D. Samack and his book, A Choice of Gods. So I hope that you uh, enjoy both of those as much as I'm going to. Those are my two favorite science fiction authors, and I'm already looking forward to being able to get those episodes and to be able to give them to you. Well, for 2001, there's a lot of things that were left unanswered, a lot of questions, a lot of ambiguity, a lot of things that were left to speculate about. If you want to know everything this movie means, you can look up the script and read the narrator's lines. 
I'm going to tell you right now, if you look up that script, you will no longer question what you're seeing. You will know exactly what it is that you're seeing and what it means and where it came from and who's doing this. All those kinds of things. A lot of those questions will be answered. But I decided not to read any of the narrator's lines here because we were concerned with the on-screen product. But if you want more answers, read the script. And you can go ahead and do that for 2001. This is a movie that I enjoyed watching. I don't know if it's a movie that I'd go back to over and over again to watch, but it's certainly a great visual experience and something uh, that is worth watching and worth watching at least once. So anyway, I think this has been great. I appreciate you being here. I can't wait until we gather to do this again. It has been and always is truly fun. So thanks for listening. For Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast, I am Derek B. Trout. Dave. This conversation could serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.